if you have any signs of joint hypermobility, joint laxity, lack of integrity in the joints, maybe your joints hyperextend, and it doesn't have to be every joint in the body, it can move around and it can be transient, and you have an autoimmune condition, maybe you have Hashimoto's, this episode is for you. Today I have on Jessica Drummond. She is the founder and CEO of Integrative Women's Health Institute and is passionate about caring for and empowering women who struggle with women's health conditions, specifically endometriosis. But through her own journey uh, with long-haul COVID, she has experienced some joint issues and dysautonomia, which we're going to talk about in this episode. I talk about joint laxity all the time and how we need to resistance train, especially with Hashimoto's and how I have clinically found joint hypermobility, tissue laxity, and having an autoimmune condition to go hand in hand in my clinical practice. And I sit down with Jessica Drummond to talk about different strategies on how to rein in that hypermobility. Also coming at it from a functional medicine perspective with addressing some root cause issues like leaky gut, muscle activation syndrome, and other things that can relate to feeling lightheaded, especially related to POTS. Dive on in. If you enjoy the episode, go to iTunes, leave a review. I read every single one. And if you're interested in joining Thyroid Strong, jump right in. You can go to my website, dremilykuyper.com forward slash thyroid dash strong. All right, let's dive in. Jessica Drummond, welcome to Thyroid Strong Podcast. Super excited to have you on because we are going to jam out on a topic that sometimes I feel like I talk about by myself and I'm so excited that we get to talk about it together. So, yeah. So I see a lot of the Hashimoto's women, the autoimmune population, and this is a clinical observation because I have tried to find some research, any research to speak to this and I haven't found any yet. I find that some of the autoimmune population has this element of hypermobility, tissue laxity. The joints are not stable. Um, the women kind of hang out on their knees in hyperextension, or maybe if they're in a plank, their elbows are hyperextended and they feel tight in certain areas, of the body, usually the mid back and the hips, but then other areas are like really sloppy. And it's always been a clinical observation, but I heard you talk about it on a couple of podcasts and I was like, oh, I got to get Jessica on because you start to talk about some of the genetic components and then also some of the kind of environmental or more maybe kind of in like what's going on on the inside of the body. Um, so you have also noticed this. Yeah. And I think, you know, so I work with many women with endometriosis and endometriosis is a complex disease, which in and of itself is not super well-defined, but it certainly has, uh, you know, it has an underlying genetic underpinning. Uh, we do see roughly the same number of fetuses with uh, endometriosis as adults, teenagers in, in the same population. So we know it, hmm. it's not a sort of period disease. It's a systemic uh, disease with a genetic under, uh, underpinning. And it's also though an inflammatory. And while the research is controversial on this, I believe from my 20, almost 25 years of clinical experience that autoimmunity certainly plays a role 
And it's very common to have other autoimmune comorbidities, everything from Hashimoto's to um, uh, celiac to autoimmune infertility challenges related to endo. So with my endometriosis population, um, we also see lots and lots of comorbid Elos Danlos, sometimes really directly clear, diagnosed, you know, and sometimes fairly severe, impacting gut motility, impacting vascular stability, um, you know, requiring um, cervical spinal fusions. Uh, I have several patients that have had more than one of those things being required. Um, and so I think when we were thinking about an, a population of people with autoimmunity, is there some underlying common genetics between both of those things, possibly, or is it just a common comorbidity? And I think at this point, we don't know yet. Um, but I do think clinically, you're very often going to see people that have both. And the other key issue is that they're not all clear cut cases of Elos Danlos at any particular level of severity. Some people don't have systemic joint laxity. They may have it in just, or, or laxity of the tissues. It, it may be just in one area. It may sort of be transient, which is even more complicated. So, and yeah. I think finally, as we were talking about earlier, the, there is also this integration with dysautonomia and or post-viral syndromes, which again, also coexist commonly with people with autoimmunity because their immune systems are not super targeted. So they're more at, you know, they're sort of, their immune systems are sometimes hyper responding in a sense of an inflammatory response, but not in a really perfectly coordinated way. So they can end up being more at risk for kind of chronically, you know, dealing with whether it's uh, viral activations or viral exposures or getting viruses or, you know, dysautonomia, I mean, dys, uh, dysbiosis, you know, mi microbial issues as well. So that's yeah. kind of a checklist of the vague things that people yeah. present with. Yeah. For people who don't know what dysautonomia is, can you describe it? Yes. Yeah, so dysautonomia, again, can be less or more severe. It's about a hundred different things, but the root of it is that um, one of the things that's most commonly understood in terms of dysautonomia is postural orthostatic hypotension syndrome. So that's where the, the, crux of it and the way it's diagnosed is through tilt table testing where basically you stand up your blood pressure drops which is the opposite of what should happen because what should happen is the vessels in the feet the legs you know in the bottom part of the body tense automatically and then you stand up and your blood pressure you know is maintained but people with POTS, the opposite things happens. They, they stand up and the blood pressure tanks. And so you can feel dizzy. So, but that's not the only thing that happens like visually, because again, the muscles and the vessels around the eye can be lax and 
not super quickly responsive. So there's transient blurred vision, there's transient dizziness, um, there's pain in various places because again, sometimes blood flow is changed or it's difficult to exercise and really get oxygenation to the areas that you're exercising potentially because of dysautonomia potentially because of other reasons um and so there are lots of different kinds of dysautonomia most are not life-threatening a few rarely are but what it is really and having experiences it, it, it basically it's like stuff that you don't usually have to think about <laughs> your body just automatically does like an auto transmission car you have to really like think about like how much water have i had how tense are my vessels how quickly can i move you know why is my heart rate kind of crazy all over the place um how you know what kind of clothing are you wearing to sort of gently compress things for either the actual compression or for proprioception? So it's this sense of the stuff that's normally autonomic, like blood pressure variability, eye, uh, you know, kind of like if you think about your camera having to like adjust the, um, like the autofocus. Yeah, that should be auto <laughs> those things are not auto so you end up having or they or they're slower to catch up so every little thing is something you have to kind of think about like if you walk downstairs are you a little dizzy you know can you stand up and take a shower because getting hot your temperature regulation is not optimal so it's all these little things that most people just move through walking and you know go outside to a different temperature it's there's not you don't think about the adaptation of that whereas with dysautonomia you have to think about it yeah is there any so you know i think the most commonly known kind of hypermobility dis uh disorder and genetic um genetic i guess diagnosis would be earlier damos mm -hmm. right but then there's like varying degrees of the hypermobility. Like you said, maybe it moves around the body, maybe it's transient, maybe it's only in one part of the body, maybe it's developed not from birth, but maybe like later in life. What what do um what do you know um about any sort of like genetic components, maybe outside of earlier Danlos related to hypermobility? Like are there certain SNPs that we could test for or Probably yes, although I don't have the checklist of that memorized. There are some. Oh, good. There are some yeah. related to Elostanlos. Um, right. And again, there's a there's about three kind of particular levels of severity of Elostanlos. You know, some people just have more joint stability, whereas other people have even cardiac instability, which is more problematic and more dangerous. Um, yeah. I don't know those genetic stimps off the top of my head, but I do think there is some awareness of that in hypermobility. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I heard you speak and I thought this was really interesting um, about how mast cell activation, activation syndrome can also play a role in this. Right. Because to some extent, the, the symptoms overlap. So it can be very right. complicated to go through a checklist of what you're diagnosing. So similarly, when you have mast cell activation, 
everything can get hot. You know, you, it's, it's difficult to tolerate heat. Your skin can flush or like break out in hives. And again, if you think about it, if your autonomic nervous system is not in a, is not coordinated, think about how, why things like neuro re-education, autonomic nervous system re-education helps it's because when your when your nervous system is not is not is stressed by any of these kind of discomforts it actually triggers an immune response so you know people with um, histamine intolerance for example may be more symptomatic the more distressing that is to the conscious or subconscious nervous system because there's never a sense of feeling safe in the body and so mm. the faster or so strategies that help people kind of feel comfortable in this chronic state of being wobbly <laughs> um can help settle the nervous system because settle the immune system. And so the mast cells aren't chronically activated related to the fact that it feels scary at some level to not be at rest in your body. And a lot of times there's some degree of predisposition to this because even people who don't have severe cases don't have like the clear signs of hypermobility. Like you can't touch your thumb to your wrist or you don't have those locked out knees you know you didn't live like that until you started becoming more symptomatic you were probably always a person who is trying to sit more comfortably like you couldn't sit still in class or you were always kind of like laying on the floor or propping your legs up or kind of holding yourself in a way that physically create some stability signaling into the nervous system, which I also think is why things like kinesio tape can be helpful. I mean, we know for sure there's tons of data that kinesio tape doesn't like stabilize joints, but it right. provides a really valuable um, bit of feedback to the nervous system that things are a little more stable, provides a sense of proprioceptive stability. Yeah. So I think that's why we have such an integration between potentially, um, you know, hypermobility syndromes, um, dysautonomia, and then actual immune reactivity, which is where the mast cell activation, you know, literally breaking out in hives or becoming more and more intolerant to foods or chemical smells or mold or, you know, anything else that under healthy circumstances, people can tolerate to some extent. This is why kind of getting to the root of that is an integration between creating stability in the body and then settling the nervous system. And that might mean really slowing people down, which is not what's rewarded in this society. So it's a big shift for a lot of people. That's true. I'd love to hear your approach to this and I'll share mine and we can kind of like yeah. trade ideas. Um, so a lot of women who come in, you know, 
because they're feeling tight in certain areas, want to get a chiropractic adjustment. They want to get some soft tissue work, get a massage. They want to be taught some stretches and foam rolling. And so I really try to focus on like, let's get the joints stable. No amount of stretching will stabilize the joint. So why don't we focus on resistance training? But we're going to start from the ground and work our way up to stand, especially with like that kind of POTS sensation. Sometimes I find that women, especially like getting up too quickly, will experience that and they feel safer on the ground. And it also mimics our neurodevelopmental milestones that we learned as babies. So why don't we hit those and train the brain with those before we get to, instead of just standing and doing a bunch of deadlifts, for for example. And then in the rest breaks, like if the heart rate went up and our breath, you know, became more vigorous using the rest breaks, uh, using tools like humming, singing, tongue on the roof of the mouth, um, trying to exhale out the nose and trying to make the exhale twice as long as the inhale. Like just trying to bring that nervous system back into that, like everything's okay state during the rest breaks before picking up a weight again. Um, so that's how I approach it. And I'd love to hear your approach as well. Yeah. So this is exactly right. And I think the best research we have is on the Levine protocol or Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, similar protocol, which is essentially a, an exercise protocol for dysautonomia that's very basic. It's like the super, most super boring physical therapy exercises you could imagine. <laughs> Loop bridges. Yeah. <laughs> bridges, straight leg raises, you know, lateral raises. Um, but what you're doing is you're strengthening and, and things like planks, you're strengthening one core stability and two lower extremity strength first um, in a, a horizontal kind of position. So as you were talking about, like closer to the ground, um, which does two things. One, having better tone in your legs is going to help tone that, you know, the, the, the vascular tone. Um, but two, it starts to retrain your autonomic nervous system to adapt as you change positions. But that part that you're talking about in between where you're taking rest breaks, and this is why things like yin yoga are really helpful or sort of integrating yin yoga or restorative yoga with or breath work restorative breath work vagus nerve toning strategies which is the humming the slow breathing any sense of grounding compression in between teaches the nervous system yet again that this movement is safe and can be progressed um and so similarly with cardiovascular exercise, rowing, swimming, um, you know, stationary, recombinant stationary biking is much, much more effective to retrain cardiovascular health without kind of having these dumps of like stress every time someone would walk. Um, and it's really challenging because again, it's kind of boring, slow progression of like five minutes of rowing three times a week or four, four times a week for a month. 
than six minutes of rowing, you know, four times a week for a month. <laughs> and, uh, it's a slow progression. Yeah, it's slow. Really slow. But that's okay. It's totally yeah. fine. Um, and that works best. And whereas upright exercise takes a while to get to, it's not that you don't get there. It's that it's slow, more slowly over time because you're essentially retraining the integration between the nervous system and the cardiovascular system while building joint stability and strength first in the lower quarter and the core. And, you know, in, in collaboration with that, we can use, um, nutritional strategies to lower inflammation, to build myofascial stability. So collagen, although increasingly because of the integration with post-viral syndrome, sometimes I'm considering, and I haven't really done a lot of this clinically yet, but I'm looking into using peptide therapy instead um, to kind of help people rebuild their own collagen versus taking too much arginine. Um, what else? So, uh, oh, SPM mediators, fish oil, um, all of the anti-inflammatory tools that we have, because again, just starting this exercise, because there's such instability at the core, both vascularly and in the fascia can trigger pain really easily. So that's why when you do the exercise right after that, if someone's in your clinic, ideally, you would also be doing like a little bit of myofascial release or tiny, tiny muscle stability, but the littlest movements would feel totally fine and great when you're doing them can knock people down for a week. Yeah. Yeah. I have um, definitely seen that. Like the saying that less is more is never more applicable than in this situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then slowly but surely progressing to things like Pilates has been really, really helpful for many of my clients. Um, you know, resisted laying down exercises and, in, and so much. So in fact, you know, we all know how Pilates was invented by Joseph Pilates, literally doing stuff in his hospital bed. And it leads me to wonder, you know, did he have dysautonomia? Like, why would you start doing like pulley exercises when you could just stand up and yeah, you know, lift stuff, but you, if yeah. you can't stand up and lift stuff. You can get longer, stronger laying down and, and lifting things to the point where that's actually beneficial. So there is a little bit of a tipping point. Uh, you know, I've lived with dysautonomia for some time now and it's been a, a learning experience. And I would say the most frustrating thing is like, I can row, you know, a long time, not a long time, but like slowly, but surely more and more and more with no, like my, if you're checking on a watch or something like that, that it doesn't even pick up that I'm exercising. Like it's just it's fine. My heart rate's totally basically the same, but half a mile of walking could knock me down for a while. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Um, do you think it is essential or it is an important piece to work with a provider to deal with any sort of maybe leaky gut or inflammatory markers, or maybe if you do have signs of symptoms of mast cell activation, that if you did address those pieces, the um, maybe the joint pain, the muscle aches, the potentially the dysautonomia would get better. 
Yeah. Maybe the hypermobility. I haven't seen it directly with hypermobility, but maybe the hypermobility. Well, I think both and, right? Like, so, yeah. you know, like you in my practice, I work with a lot of super complicated people <laughs> that have all the things, <laughs> right? You've got one kind of core diagnosis for us. It's mostly endometriosis, but other things too, Hashimoto's, other autoimmune diseases, you know, increasingly things like long COVID or, um, you know, perimenopausal symptoms, like there's a lot of things going on at the same time. And so when you think about what I always say to my patients, and I got this um, term from a book called Cured by a guy named Jeffrey Rettinger, but this is how I've thought of my work for, you know, my entire career, almost 25 years that with any kind of complex chronic illness, first of all, there's a lot of the same things going on. Like people with a lot of whatever the diagnosis, you know, the, the leading diagnosis is have all of these, any, any, you know, random, uh, number of cards, <laughs> you know, if you're thinking about like the cards that you're dealt here with your complex illness, you could have any number of these things. You might have hypermobility, but not dysautonomia. You might have dysautonomia and not so much hypermobility. You may have post-viral syndrome. You may not. You may have gut dysbiosis, leaky gut. That's kind of core to almost all of this. I think most people have some degree of digestive function issues and or gut dysbiosis. And also... I think most people, even people who are relatively healthy, have um, nervous system dysregulation. So that's often at the core of everything, but it's it's not the only thing. So this term is called the upward spiral of healing. And I feel like- I love that. Wherever you can get in, right? It's not an upward straight line of healing. It's not an upward ladder of healing. So there are some days where you don't feel, where, where like- I think we can't be tracking day by day. Like, how do you feel? How do you feel this moment? Zero out of 10, what's your pain? I think we need to be thinking differently that you're healthy right now. And how can we move a lot of these different levers? Even if you're literally in bed, like almost all the time, if you're still alive, you're somewhere on the continuum of health. Even if you have a terminal illness, you can be living in a way that's, I think deeply beautiful and human, right? So if we take that, that there's no like perfect place that we're all trying to get to in terms of health, we're just, everyone's trying to live more fully. All you do wanna address all of these things somewhat simultaneously. And so the term we use in our clinic is don't chase symptoms, optimize systems. Oh, I love that. So we just, you're going to have symptoms. Like even if you're quote unquote healthy, some mornings you're hungover. Some days you have a headache. <laughs> you know, sometimes your knee hurts. You have no idea why, right? And yeah, <laughs> yes. Know, this increases as you age, even if again, you're you're doing NADIVs and you're, you're you know, triathlon training and whatever. You might have had a bad night of sleep because your dog was throwing up. Like, who knows? 
Right. This is why the hashtag, all the things. All the things. So <laughs> like great. no one is health. No one is like perfectly healthy. Like what does that even mean? Right. Right. So a very different way to look at this is my goal is to help my clients get really clear on how they want to live and feel less uncomfortable doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that perspective because I think it can be instead of an upward spiral, spiral into healing, it can feel like a downward spiral into like our thoughts and our symptoms and really getting in our head about it. So I love that mindset shift. Um, I love to talk about anxiety because I know a lot of the ladies with Hashimoto's, they have anxiety. They might also have depression and especially those with the hypermobility, just working with them clinically. I've noticed there's an extra edge of anxiousness. And I always thought, you know, if I had joints that were kind of loose and sloppy and I couldn't feel grounded in my body and I couldn't find where I am in time and space, like maybe a decrease in proprioception, Mm -hmm. I too would probably be anxious and, um, and depressed. And then I read about some research about maybe it's more the lack of integrity in the venous um, structure in the legs, and that's not allowing the blood to the heart. And maybe that's creating this anxiousness because you're kind of feeling lightheaded. Um, I was I was wondering your thoughts. Maybe maybe it's similar. I do think it's all of those things. So as I mentioned before, like this sense that you're always a little wobbly feels yeah. unsteadily unstable for the nervous system. And again, it's not just your joints, it's your vascular system, it's your digestion, it's your vision. So it's challenging to move through the world when like, everything's a little always like, 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 where am I? (laughs) Yeah. And like things like your heart rate, you know, if you just aren't quite right with your salt, magnesium, potassium, hydration balance, your heart rate can be like 120, 60, 12, you know, it doesn't go to 12, but one, you know, it's like it bounces or it stays high for kind of no reason, even with just sort of mild stress, um, because then the vagus nerve gets sort of clipped into the wrong gear, if you will. So that there's an integration in the kind of gut brain heart axis of this that I think helps people feel more grounded. So what I do is have people have a lot of strategies for that feeling more grounded. So this is going to get a slightly esoteric, but I'm a Taurus. And so I'm in like an earth sign (laughs) and so i'm a capricorn i get you yeah and so like i literally have like rocks on my desk like you know just from like walking around in the neighborhood or on the beach near my town and just kind of like there's a sense of like natural grounding that you can utilize tools like that or like earthy scents like cinnamon tea warmth compression things that kind of in a more spiritual way, keep people grounded or even like routines, things like this is when I do my meditation practice. And this is when, you know, if you have a prayer practice or whatever, this is when I sit outside. This is what time I go to bed, like keeping some 
stabilizing routines, certain kinds of music might be more calming. Um, but, and, and I also think this is more important to some people than others. Some people feel okay. They kind of like a little bit of airy fairiness. Like <laughs> there's a, there's a sort of spiritual joy in that for some people. And then I think on a very practical level for people with dysautonomia and hypermobility, there's an even more importance to grounding nutrition. So, um, you know, really more protein, more beneficial fats, probably animal proteins for most people, um, bone broth soups, you know, or like if it's summer, like heartier salads, you know, things that I would never start the day of someone with this degree of kind of instability, also making their blood sugar insecure and unstable. So being mindful of don't start your day with like coffee and a donut. Cause you're just already wobbly. Like don't make it more shaky. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. When you um, work with people struggling with this dysautonomia, hypermobility, um, can you give like a really simple checklist of your approach and how you help yeah. someone struggling with these symptoms? So I think it depends. Start with what's most bothersome to them. Um, because sometimes just understanding what's going on, that the fact that many of your tissues are a little wobbly and the things that for many people and even for you in the past were just kind of automatic we got to slow down and let the nervous system catch up like it just doesn't go as fast that can be helpful because then you don't panic every time your heart races or you know you feel dizzy understanding the condition is helpful because it's just like oh this is just the dysautonomia. And then I have a couple tools so that that upward spiral starts with the moment where you're like, okay, what feels easiest to me? Is it a certain breakfast? Is it a, is it a coherence breathing practice, which is just simply six seconds in six seconds out through the nose. If you can, um, you know, is it a cup of tea? Is it lying down and doing some bridges. So you start like just getting more stable in the kind of midsection of the body. Um, is it how you set up your desk? Is it the kind of clothes you wear? Is it a taping routine? So there's sort of that we can do it from the inside and we can do it from the outside. And when we talk about like the myofascial structure. So I start with if people are very anxious, which is very common and then depression can fall behind that because it's like, oh, I used to be so productive <laughs> and I just- Or active, active or yeah. And I just can't move at that pace anymore. You know, I mean, and I, I get this for to under, to go from, you know, three or four high intensity hit classes, you know, deadlifting 120 pounds to, walking a half mile is a little bit of a struggle is a big emotional shift. It's a big identity shift. So we have to see like what, where is this person in terms of acceptance and understanding of their journey first, then the checklist of tools, 
the good news is we have a ton. We can use the nervous system regulation tools. We can use nutritional tools. We can use movement tools. We can use grounding and spirituality kinds of tools. And a lot of that just depends from a, you know, I always lead everything with a coaching perspective on what's most feels best to the client. Where, where are they ready to start? What feels easiest? Yeah. I, I love that approach. And um, I think it's always like meet the person you're working with where they're at. And then also meet your, meet yourself where you're at. If you are struggling with these symptoms for someone. So I had, a, I had a call the other day with a couple of women um, with Hashimoto's and they both expressed three things. One that their friends don't get it. Like they used to go on six hour hikes and now going, you know, 30, 30 minute walk feels like it takes it out of them. And then the second thing they expressed was feeling isolated because their family doesn't get them. Like their family thinks they're crazy was the exact words. And that their kids are saying like, mommy, you've really slowed down. What's going on? (laughs) And then the last thing that they expressed was that when they overdo it, maybe these signs of kind of dysautonomia or maybe exercise intolerance was the words Mm -hmm. they used that um, and it was interesting because they both had it in different positions. One was, I do better on the ground when I get up quickly, right? I feel lightheaded, which is kind of the more, from what I've heard, traditional presentation. And then the other woman was like, oh, really? Because when I get on the ground, I don't feel good. I feel better when I do standing exercises. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is so interesting that it's similar symptoms, different positions. Obviously, it could be different root causes, maybe inner ear stuff, you know, one of them was post-viral, but, um, what, what do you tell those women who feel isolated by what they're feeling? Well, I'll answer that question before I answer that really quickly. For me, a post-viral experience has been, I also can't lie down. Now I I have exercise lying down, which is weird, but I can't, I wasn't able to breathe lying down for a long time. So sitting Mm. is better. Standing is better, but exercising lying down is the only thing. So it's, it's weird. There's no like one size fits all of this. It's, it's very inconsistent. Uh, Although it tends to be consistent for that person. Cause I've seen the same kind of thing. Like I feel better in this position. I feel worse in that position. I can move in this position. I can't. And you're right. Like whatever you feel, it's correct. <laughs> it's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's real. Yeah. So it is, I think the hard part is that this is kind of like pre and post having children, right? You literally yes. can't know what it's like unless you're, you are there. Yeah. And uh, there is post, the other thing to, to discuss that we haven't really talked about, there is exercise tolerance, PEM, post-exertional malaise, which is also Mm. a little different from this. It's not just the how of exercise, but like the how much and how often and things like that. And it's it's tricky because especially if they're post-viral, you really can't push that. 
it, it can kind of break, if you will, the mitochondria and it makes it worse. So you have to think differently about exercise. Exercise isn't to strengthen and build endurance. You rest to strengthen and build endurance, which allows you to exercise, right. which is opposite of what we kind of know, you know, we generally know. So that's super confusing. So there are also people in that boat do need to be doing a lot of work to strengthen their mitochondria. And most of that, like the most important thing is to sleep a ton, but there are also supplemental supports, things like CoQ10 and NMN and Urolife A and stuff like that. So back to the gut as, as we're always doing. Yep. <laughs> um, but I think we have to shift our expectations. People aren't going to understand how you feel. And also it's not really something they can focus on. Like they have their own stuff. Going on. <laughs> and now you're the people very closest to you. I think there's a level of, I am a different kind of person now because I do have different capabilities. May they improve someday at a whole level, like on that upward spiral, like may I get to level two from level one? Yep, I might. Um, but also in, in along the way, there are going to be some rougher days, which you have to, you know, so let's say you're talking to like your spouse or your best friend, someone who wants to try to help understand. Even your children, I think, depending on how old they are, you know, some moms are athletes, some moms aren't, you know, and, and I love moving and I loved being able to do this with you. And I also love cheering you on from the side. Um, and some things you get to do with your sister and some things you get to do with your dad and some things you get to do with your aunt and some things you get to do with me. And you change your, you'll, you do have to kind of change your relationship with people a little bit, especially if it's way different from what they're used to. Um, yeah. And, but I do think it's, there's an important level of acceptance around even your closest friends. Like there's only so much, if they can't do anything about it, they just don't want to hear it after a while. And so you have to, and while this is super ableist and unfortunate that you have to do this, it's helpful if you instead just invite people to do things you can do. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and it might be much, much smaller and it might be less often. And it also is helpful to connect with people who are in the same boat. Um, but it's tricky because it's, it's inconsistent. I think that's the hardest part about any chronic illness. And again, I've been working with people with endometriosis for 25 years. The hardest part is that you just never really know when you're going to be able to show up and you have to get comfortable with showing up 50% when you really want to be there a hundred percent or canceling at the last minute and looking flaky, which you're not, right? But also there's so much, the reality is, and I think this is what's really helped me, this happens in general. 
we just think it happens more. It maybe and it maybe it does happens more to us now than it used to. So it's a new sensation mm. for us. But life is by definition uncertain. So people cancel stuff all the time for any number of reasons. They got a flat tire, you know, again, there was a pet issue, like anything could happen. Yeah. 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 Totally. So, yeah. but it is challenging when you become like this and people knew you in a different way. And if your social mm. network and your identity is very wrapped up in that, it requires literally changing how you see yourself. And that may take therapy, coaching, tons of journaling. It's a process. Yeah. So insightful. Jessica, where can people find you? Um, if they're people Your physically work. wanting to get help for themselves, uh, outsmartendo.com. And for our professional trainings, it's integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com. Yeah. And on the social platforms as well. Yes. Instagram at integrative, integrative women's health is kind of where we mostly post things. So that's the best place. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I loved diving into this with you, especially because we have both physically experienced yeah. elements of this. Yeah. 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 So also from like a first person experience, I loved it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me.